My name is Matt Moran. I'm one of the pastors at this church. Uh, as Matt told, told you moments ago, uh, many of the men in this church are returning from our men's retreat in New Hampshire. We had 40 plus men from Malden and Melrose. Um, I know that many of you prayed for us, made sacrifices for this weekend to happen. Um, I'm really grateful personally for the women I know who were meeting this week to pray for us. Um, God met us at this time, and I know that many of you gathered formally or were praying for us throughout this weekend, helping make this happen. As I open up God's word to you this weekend, I'll be um, getting into a text that we got into over the weekend and giving a report at the same time of what of some of the things that you we learned. So if you weren't there, you'll get a taste of what we experienced this weekend. And if you were, we'll be able to get into some things in some greater depth. Okay. How, how does the gospel make men fearless? That was a question that we went deep on this weekend. There is a reality of fear in our lives that we are scared. And yet fear is not something that most people are generally comfortable admitting, right? That's not something that I generally would share casually, things that I'm afraid of. So how do we cope with fear? One of the main, one of the main ways that I cope with fear is uh, some combination of denial and self-preservation. So I, I choose what I would call risk-averse behavior. I find lanes that I am comfortable with and actually feel uh, capable in, and I stay there. Most men are generally terrified to engage in something where they feel inadequate. So if you have, um, you know, if you need help with your car or you have a carpentry project in your backyard, don't call me. I will be busy that day. I will, I will have a previous commitment. There are, certain, there are certain areas of my life that, like, I try to stay out of those lanes because they make me feel inadequate. I deny my fear or I preserve myself to keep myself from those areas. But the second thing, the second thing we, that we do to avoid fear is um, some type of self-help or motivation. In other words, we tell ourselves or we find gurus who tell us, you are strong and you can do it. The strength lies within you. And we look down on the weaklings that are afraid. Okay. That may work, that may work for a certain, like, as long as you stay in the zone that you feel capable of. You may, you may have great trust in your inner strength. But what happens when something comes along where that strength, where you tap into that strength and find that it's inadequate? So specifically, what are we scared of? This was something we went deep on this weekend, and the list is long. I can tell you the list is long. We're scared. So many things. I'm scared of losing my job, running out of money, losing the affection of my wife, being alone, fear of failure, fear of the way that I will raise my children, that my poor parenting is going to ruin my children's life, fear of pain and suffering, fear of losing loved ones. Fear that I will never be able to conquer an addiction. Or maybe even fear that deep down I don't even really want to. We have a lot of fear. So how does the gospel address 
that fear. This is the text that we got into Friday night. Katie just read it for us. This is Deuteronomy 1. To give you a little bit of context for this, the passage that Katie just read is spoken by Moses, but this is not Moses right after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. Moses is an old man at the end of his life as he's speaking these words. He's recounting a long-ago episode to people, to a second generation of people who are now at the edge of the promised land. But Moses is really telling them, hey, your parents and I had this talk 40 years ago, and this is what happened. The promised land that the Israelites are on the verge of in this passage is the final destination for the people of God in the Old Testament. God has delivered his people out of slavery, out of captivity, and the promised land is their dwelling place that God has promised them. Moses recounts to them what happened the last time the people were at the edge of the promised land. This is Deuteronomy 1. Let's look at this text. He says, We set out from Horeb, this is starting in verse 19, and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession of it. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you, do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. Let me stop there for right now. We'll get into the rest of the text later. But first, let me pray. Father, we, um, we come to you knowing our, our weakness and fear and asking for your spirit to intervene in this time that I would uh, proclaim your word clearly and faithfully and with authority. We pray that you would give us hearts to listen and hear and obey. You come, Spirit, and speak to us now, we pray. Amen. Okay. The first thing that's very fascinating about this passage is Moses admits that the wilderness that they traversed through it's great and terrifying. He said, we went through all this great and terrifying land. In other words, there's no denial of the terror that exists in this strange post-captivity land. There are, they may have been gotten out of Egyptian slavery, but there's no lack of enemies in their life. This journey is not um, without enemies, and the biblical response to fear is not some type of denial here that we often find in self-help, some sort, some sort of aggressive denial that there actually is fear out there. There's no mentality here like, I eat fear for breakfast and spit it out for lunch. Instead, Moses is acknowledging, no, the task in front of you is great and terrifying, and yet the command remains. There is a land that God has called you to possess, so go and take it. And this will take courage. 
in many ways, we could say that their situation is unique, and in many ways, you could say their situation is like ours. Standing on the, on the verge of the promised land. So specifically, I'm sure we could all think of individual callings that we have or desires that we have that God has planted in us that would take great courage. That may be in the everyday of your job or calling, or that may be something in the future that you know that God has called you to, that you have a God-given desire to pursue that will take great courage, and yet you're held back by fear. And generally, as a church, we have a calling to be a faithful, Jesus-exalting church, to make the real Jesus known by the planting and establishing of churches in greater Boston. That will take courage. And Moses says, you've come up to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord God is giving us. And see, there it is. It's right before you. So go up and take it. Take possession as the Lord God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So the Israelites contemplate that exhortation, this pep talk that Moses has given them. And what's their solution? Well, they can see that it's good, and they can see that the command is clear, but they want to delay. They want to collect some data. So they suggest to Moses, let's form a committee. Let's not rush this process. Why don't we get 12 of our best men to go up and do some reconnaissance and figure out what exactly we're getting into? Moses says, then you all came near and said, let's send some men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go and the cities into which we shall come. Uh, this, is, this is some type of procrastination under the, uh, under the guise of prudence that they're putting together like a committee to go search out the land, figure out exactly what's going on, this is sort of like, you know, when a, pre- when a um, president wants to start a campaign before they go like full tilt into fundraising, what do they form? They form an exploratory committee. You know, they, you want to sort of like feel, you want to test the wind and figure out exactly what is going on out there. We'll do some reconnaissance and figure out if doing what God says is actually a good idea. So what's the belief here? It's the idea that behind data is peace of mind. It's the idea that if only we knew enough, we could fix anything. Or it's, well, if we failed, it's because we didn't have enough information or didn't use the right method. So when I say that, don't don't hear me say that research and prudence is not a good idea. But I am saying that there is an emotional variable outside of data, and that variable is simply this. Do you believe that God is actually trustworthy and good? Do you believe that God is trustworthy and good? Because that's the question underneath the research. Do you believe that? Because let's look at what's happening here. God is not denying that the wilderness is great and terrifying, And he's not denying the size of their enemies. Later on in this chapter, they refer to the Anakim, which are like legendary giants. 
He's calling them to go in and take the land despite of that. And the reason is not in the statistics. It's not in, you know, the, it's not in the numbers of the Israelites' army or their military might versus uh, who they'll be facing. It's not in that type of ratio. But he's calling them to go in and take the land despite of that. And the reason is that God is giving it to them himself. But under the guise of prudence, the Israelites delayed. So let me ask you this. How many of us are doing that with our fears? How many of us are playing a game of delay and procrastination or we're using the language of process when we're simply delaying obedience? How many of us think that there is actually a safer place than complete obedience to God? And we actually equate data with safety. But let's go on. God is merciful. He allows the search party to form. And the 12 men go up into the hills on a research mission. It wasn't necessary, but God allows it. So they come back carrying huge chunks of fruit and saying, it's exactly what God said it would be. It's a good land. Moses says, I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. There's a representative that can talk to each one of them. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. So some of you, have you ever tried to tell someone who really, really likes their food where they should go out to eat? If they don't trust your foodie credentials, what do they do? You get that kind of non-committal, oh yeah, I should try that. They yes you, but you know, you know, they take their, they take their food seriously. And just your little rec- restaurant recommendation is not going to get it done. They're not changing Friday night plans just because you said, you said it was good. But if you want to get your point across, what do you say? You actually say, try this. It's right here. Some of you may know of the uh, Bohemian Coffee House on Emerson Street. Okay. They have, uh, they, have some, they have some issues around human interaction and customer service, but those people are making some excellent muffins. Okay. And if you want to get your point across, what do you do? You say, try this. Here is a piece. Have this muffin. That will get your point across. And that's what these guys did. They had the fruit in their hands. Okay? There's no denying now that the land is actually good when people are toting around grapes with both hands. And yet, the subsequent response of the people proves that the search party was just simply a guise all along. They had no intention of obeying. Moses says, yet you would not go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorite, to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. 
They rebelled. They murmured against God. Their fear overtook them. There was a refusal to believe. And underneath that, underneath the actual fear, was something even darker. It was, they were actually believing lies about God's character. Look at that phrase. It says, because he hated us. That's why God brought us out here. Because he actually hated us. This twisted, bizarre unbelief in God that causes them not to obey. And if we look back in time, we'd see these are the people that experienced the exodus. The exodus out of captivity prefigures the cross. So they had, a, they had as direct an experience with the person of God as anyone in the Old Testament. Look at all of what God did. The exodus starts with God hearing the cries of weak, helpless people in captivity. The beginning of the exodus starts where the Israelites have to go to, they have to go to secrecy to hide even their children. That's how powerful Pharaoh is, that he is murdering their children. And yet God hears the cry of the Israelites when they were in slavery. He causes an insignificant, fearful shepherd, Moses, to confront Pharaoh. He causes ten miraculous plagues which overturn all of Egypt's magicians. The Nile River turns into blood. The Israelites actually leave Egypt carrying the jewels of the Egyptians with them. The Bible tells us they plundered the Egyptians. They cross over the Red Sea on dry land. And yet, they believe when they look at the giants in the land that God brought them out there to kill them. It's all an elaborate setup is what they believe. This is like, this is like the Jim Carrey paranoia from the Truman Show when he starts to realize that his life is an elaborate setup and it's a TV show starring him, except that Jim Carrey actually had reason to be paranoid. In fact, this type of paranoia is more like, I don't think I'm probably the only eight-year-old that had a moment where you start wondering if your parents are really your parents, and your grandma and grandpa are really your grandma and grandpa, and you wonder if your whole life is like part of a hoax that everyone is in on except for you. I remember feeling that as a little child, but this is a special type of adult narcissism. It's in light of the Exodus, they believe that God has actually orchestrated everything to bring them out here to the desert and kill them. There is a special type of self-sabotage that could make them believe that God was not actually for them. And yet we do this too. I have so many daily, tangible evidences of the grace of God in my life. And yet my actions are a reflection of what I truly believe to be true about God. My actions always show the gap between my belief, what I proclaim and what I truly believe. And yet, what does this text tell us about what God is like and what God has done? 
Let's keep going. Moses said to them in verse 29, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. That text shows us three things about God. First, it says, the Lord himself will fight for you. In other words, Moses is pointing them to the power of God. The second thing that he points them to is, he says, the Lord your God carried you. Not only is God infinitely strong, but he is infinitely tender and loving. And the third thing it says, he points to the God who went before you to seek out a place to pitch your tents and fire by night and the cloud by day. That was the presence of God. We have the tenderness of God, the power of God, the presence of God with us. God himself will fight for us. Our actions really do say what we believe about God's character. And throughout this text, God is instructing his people to act with faith and not with fear. But he doesn't say that the basis of their confidence should be in their track record, in their giftings, in the level of motivation that they currently have, or because their fears are not really real. He acknowledges their fears are great and terrifying. He's not trying to motivate them with a self-help pep talk. He's saying, look at my character. Look at who I am. Powerful and loving. My spirit is with you. We see God's character in this text. Powerful and loving. And the men delay by saying, let us send men up. Let's, let's think about this. Let's, you know, let's not rush into anything. They believe that there is a safer place than God's will. They're gathering more data before they decide to act. So let me ask you this. When we make key decisions or decide whether or not to accept a challenge, what is the role of information gathering in our decision-making process? There is a role there, but is it an ultimate one? And are we prone to using those techniques to make wise decisions or to needlessly delay obedience to, what, to God's clear command? Are we using information to needlessly delay obedience to God's clear command? When God tells his people, do not be in dread or afraid of them. His command not to fear is rooted in his character, and it's also rooted in his prior faithfulness, right? He's saying, I will, I will fight for you just as I did in Egypt before your eyes. You saw it. Just as I did, I will fight for you. So in fear, where are you forgetting the past faithfulness of God? Where do you need to remember his faithfulness and let it spur you to confident faith in action? 
Where is God calling you to act in faith and not in fear? Because the ultimate reason that we have not to be afraid is not that our fears are not real, is not that we have infinite strength residing within us. It is because we belong to a God who has sent his son to enter into the abyss of fear for us. Jesus fully entered humanity and fully took the punishment for our sin, fully faced fear head on. He he is our representative and we have a loving and all-powerful father who has sent his son for us. We believe in a God who is loving and strong and gives us the courage to face fear. So what I'm telling you today is believe in that. Fear can paralyze us, but we know that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, absolutely tender and patient with us, and that his son has entered into the darkness of fear. And we know that in his hands, we are eternally safe. Please pray with me. Father, you know that as men, we are weak and easily paralyzed by fear. You know that there are fears that are probably unique to us as men, but that as women, there are some that we share and some that are, are unique. And, but we, either way, we need you to speak to us, address us, remind us of your character cause us to put our confidence not in ourselves or in our information, but in the character of God himself. I ask that you would do that work in us, in our hearts, by your spirit, and cause us to live fearlessly. We pray for that in Jesus' name.